This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Business of Healthcare. Here is your host, Jeff Voigt. Welcome to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. We're live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time. I'm Jeff Voigt, Principal of Medical Device Consultants at Ridgewood, a firm dedicated to evaluating the clinical and cost effectiveness of medical technologies. I publish frequently on this topic in the peer-reviewed literature. I'm also an editor for one of the leading peer-reviewed cost effectiveness journals. Lastly, I'm a 1985 graduate of the Wharton Healthcare Management Program. If you're interested in joining in the conversation today, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So today, we're going to discuss artificial intelligence and its use in the practice of evidence-based medicine. We're not going to peer into the black box, per se, or how AI does its thing, but we will discuss the inputs and outputs from it and how they can and will be used moving forward in our health system. Artificial intelligence's use in medicine has the potential to unlock clinically relevant information hidden in massive amounts of data, which in turn can assist in clinical decision-making. These are the AI algorithms that are written by the programmers. AI can also learn from this data to improve its accuracy and decision-making. This is another form of AI called machine learning and its variant deep learning through neural networks, and we'll talk a little bit about those today. Now, the purview of evidence-based medicine is the synthesis, that's a tough word to say, of outcomes in high-quality studies, generally using meta-analytical statistical techniques. These types of analyses form the backbone of clinical guideline development development by specialty societies and as well determine what payers such as Medicare and private insurers cover and pay for. Artificial intelligence is being used in evidence assessments to synthesize findings from such areas as clinical trials and cancer to diagnose and direct therapies for patients. AI's use will likely continue to expand into numerous other areas moving forward, depending upon whether some of these issues discussed today are addressed. The consulting firm McKinsey back in 2017 on a paper on artificial intelligence, The Next Frontier, stated the following, AI will make quicker and more accurate diagnoses create better treatment plans and enable new approaches to cover and pay for health insurance, uh, to pay for health care. McKinsey also stated that the potential for US cost savings with AI is upwards of $300 billion per year. In the future, virtual assistants may be able to conduct consultations, make diagnoses, prescribe drugs and facilitate treatment uh, treatment delivery through alerting and scheduling. In a 2017 report to the Department of Health and Human Services, which was funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, it states that the confluence of the following three forces will prime the use of AI in healthcare. Number one, a frustration with the legacy medical system. Secondly, the ubiquity of networked smart devices. And finally, the acclimation of at-home services, like those provided by Amazon. So the question is, Will AI be used in mainstream medicine for assessing patients and guiding therapeutic applications? If it can be, what are the hurdles that need to be overcome in order to make it mainstream? Do we as a healthcare industry want or need this? Should we rely only on the clinical data in making clinical decisions, or are we missing something else, more relevant uh, inputs such as a person's lifestyle and maybe even their story? Today, I have three panelists with me to discuss the use of artificial intelligence in health and care and its potential for widespread or more ubiquitous use. My guests, Dr. Craig Umshid, Associate Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology, Vice Chair for Quality and Safety, Department of Medicine, Director, Center for Evidence-Based Practice at the University of Pennsylvania Health System. Dr. Umshid also collaborates with organizations such as the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to assist with guideline development. He also serves as a senior associate director of the ECRI Institute, Penn Medicine Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality Evidence-Based Practice Center. 
He is chair of the PCORI Advisory Panel on Healthcare Delivery and Disparities Research and an invited member of the ARC Evidence Practice Center Method Steering Committee and the ARC Patient-Centered Clinical Decision Support Learning Network Steering Committee. Craig's joining us by phone. Craig, are you there? And welcome. I am here. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. My next guest is Dale Vandemark, partner McDermott, Will & Emery. Dale advises clients in the health industry on strategic transactions and the evolution of healthcare delivery models. He has extensive experience in health system affiliations and joint venture transactions. He also provides counseling on the development of technology and healthcare delivery with a particular emphasis on telemedicine. Dale is also joining us by phone. Dale, are you there? I am. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And my last guest, Charles Chadwick, president of Live Circle. Chad's developed an AI-driven continuous learning care system for families and patients dealing with chronic conditions in the home. Its intention is to provide concierge medicine on a bare budget and minimize the need for care in more expensive care settings such as hospitals. This continual unique learning system provides individually configured services to aid in the delivery of care for that person's life. Chad, welcome. Nice to be here. Okay, so let's let's start off uh, with what it is you guys do, and then we'll get into the nitty-gritty. Craig, um, give us a little uh, in, some insights into what you do at Penn, and what is the Center for Evidence-Based Practice at, uh, at Penn itself? Sure. Well, I'm a uh, clinician, administrator, and researcher at Penn. I spend about 20% of my time uh, practicing inpatient general internal medicine at Penn. And then the other 80% of my time is administrative research time. So half of that time I lead quality and safety for our Department of Medicine at Penn. And then the other half of that time I uh, direct the Center for Evidence-Based Practice, which is a Penn Health System Center. So the, the Center for Evidence-Based Practice uh, is really uh, in existence uh, to support the quality, safety, and value of care that Penn provides to its patients. And we do that in a variety of ways. Uh, the three main approaches that we use, first of all, we do a lot of synthesis of the peer-reviewed literature to help inform institutional decision-making by clinical leaders and administrative leaders. Secondly, we integrate much of this evidence into clinical practice through the electronic health record and other means using clinical decision support and clinical pathways. And then lastly, our center does a lot of education for nursing, uh, physicians, uh, advanced practice providers, trainees in the area of evidence-based quality improvement. Mm-hmm. And so is this uh, unique uh, across the country, or are there other leading medical centers that do similar to what you do? I think how well-scoped our work is um, and how our center sits within the Office of the Chief Medical Officer and how we also contribute um, not only within Penn but outside of Penn to national efforts Mm-hmm. And the scholarship that comes out of the center is relatively unique. I will say that many large integrated healthcare systems do have some form, though, of uh, a group or a committee that helps synthesize evidence to inform local practice guidelines. Okay, got it. And Dale, tell me a little bit about your practice and maybe some of the involvement you have with artificial intelligence. Sure. Well, at McDermott, uh, our healthcare practice, we represent uh, just about every aspect of the healthcare industry and all of its subsectors. We do a lot of strategic and innovative transactions, a lot of what's going on uh, these days that we read about in the papers. But we also work with our clients as technology has become uh, much more of an important factor in terms of either care delivery or how we go about analyzing uh, performance uh, or, uh, or other applications. And so increasingly we find in the transactions that we work on, technology is much more of uh, an issue, something that needs to be dealt with um, much more uh, rigorously uh, and is increasingly becoming a core element of what we engage with. In the area of artificial intelligence, We've seen this predominantly, although not exclusively, in uh, uh, data 
transactions. In other words, transactions where parties are trying to identify and procure rights to data that they can use in artificial intelligence systems to uh, do some of the things that uh, Craig was talking about, but also uh, certainly other uh, applications that are out there. Mm-hmm. We're also working with health systems to really understand how artificial intelligence systems uh, really work within the regulatory environment because it does represent fairly unique technology and its functionality uh, can be uh, very different uh, from a uh, categorical perspective than a lot of other technology, and it is sometimes difficult to really understand how the regulatory environment will treat it. Uh, So there's some interesting and difficult questions that arise in the applications. Yeah, so we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, And so let me just ask our final guest, Chad, uh, Chad Chadwick, um, tell me a little bit about LifeCircle and what, what makes it different and unique than what else is out there on kind of the AI front. Sure, sure. So one of the things that we look at is what really uh, affects the personal stories of the people that we serve or intend to serve. What drives models then of care accordingly so that you can take into account the various various factors and then make sure that that person has what that person needs to live uh, life more and more on their own terms. So what this means is understanding their story, being able to do it at scale, collaborating with others through AI models that get into the home, that get into the daily life, that turn the phone into almost a personal care center, Mm -hmm. uh, that expand into the social networks and other parts of daily life that, um, that people are involved in. And then to Greg's point, being able to uh, incorporate and deploy quickly uh, with clinical vigor uh, those things that um, are appropriate for the particular need. So we theoretically can meet the continuous uh, need for, for data uh, required to, to really make sure the care itself is uh, continuous. Uh, what this sort of cumes up to is a different approach to uh, health care itself that uses AI to personalized, comprehensive, subscription-based uh, care uh, for folks, especially in the in the chronic care space, so they can live their story. Yeah, okay. So it, it sounds to me, and we'll get into this again in a little bit more detail, the difference that your service technology has is necessarily not that it looks at a person from a clinical standpoint. It tries to integrate the clinical issues of that person with what's going on in their life and make sure that they're uh, their, these these are accommodated, or accom- their life has been able to, to live more fully and 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 the way they want it to live they want to live is that right? Yeah, it and, has a lot to do with uh, understanding how data translates into collaboration with other people. Yep, making sure it's harnessed uh, and relevant to the enablement of people to move beyond their condition to what they want to be able to do with their everyday. Uh-huh. So it, it takes data and makes it um, something that, that people can act on uh-huh. uh, more frequently in their daily life. Okay. So let's start getting into the AI uh, thing here. Um, Craig, um, tell me a little bit about what's going on from an artificial intelligence standpoint, even at Penn, from uh, from, our, uh, from what you're doing with the data and syn- synthesizing the data. Um, I read several of your papers, and you're talking about rapid reviews, but it would seem to me that AI is just allowing you to do that anyways. And so reviews, systematic reviews, will become, in some ways, um, AI-driven. Uh, and the conclusions that come out of those, out of the black boxes, the stuff you'll be using. Is, is, that, is that right, or uh, help, help me understand that? I think that's fair to a certain extent. I will say that uh, many of uh, the systematic reviews we're doing of the research literature to help inform uh, decision-making across the institution, uh, some of the key aspects of those reviews, um, it's difficult to automate them. Um, It really takes uh, key stakeholders, key decision-makers on the ground, to be directly involved in thinking through this. So I would say one of the most important parts of any rapid systematic review that we do is uh, asking a very well-defined question, because the quality of the question will dictate 
the quality of the answer that you get. So that's a very um, uh, epidemiologic uh, key stakeholder uh, type of situation rather than an automated type of situation. Now, I will say that um, machine learning, artificial intelligence can be very helpful in the process of when you define that question and you want to go to the literature, using various tools to help you search the literature more quickly mm -hmm. and find high-yield articles more quickly. And I would say we're just uh, on the cusp of that right now. When I say we're, I mean the field in general, nationally and internationally. There's a lot of interest in how to use artificial intelligence or machine learning methods to more efficiently search and find the results of your search. And then there are other aspects of uh, rapid reviews that could potentially be automated as well. When you find research articles of interest, you want to appraise their quality, their rigor, the validity, and you can use automated methods uh, to do that. But it's actually a lot more challenging than it sounds because much of the appraisal of individual research articles uh, is a very uh, – nuanced activity. Um, and so it's more difficult to uh, uh, program uh, a computer to do this type of work than, than many might suspect. And then synthesizing all of the information you get from these, these uh, original research articles and the appraisals into one summary that somebody can use um, and use in an efficient way is even more challenging. So I think we're starting uh, the process of, of using artificial intelligence in this approach. And most of the, the, uh, the initial attempts have been in the area of searching for literature. Um, but we have a ways to go. Got it. And uh, I want to talk to you a little bit more about whether we'll, whether we'll get there at some point. Uh, I'm Jeff Foyt, and you're listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. We're talking today about artificial intelligence and the potential for its widespread use in everyday medical practice. My guest today, Dr. Craig Umshid, Associate Professor at Penn and Director of Evidence-Based Practice at UPenn Health Systems, Dale Vandemark, Partner at McDermott, Will & Emery, and Chad Chadwick, CEO of Live Circle, who has developed an AI-driven system for the care of chronic conditions in the home. So, um, Dale, we had uh, a discussion, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about um, kind of the regulatory uh, hurdles uh, and, and some of the things that are happening uh, that uh, the FDA is trying to um, uh, facilitate and accelerate into the marketplace from, from a digital health standpoint. And you had mentioned some of the, um, uh, the, the laws that are coming down the pipeline that, that may help uh, along those lines. Could, could you uh, in, uh, enlighten us a little bit about what, what that is and what, what's going on? Sure. Well, I think the one of the most exciting things going on in healthcare today, my personal opinion, uh, really are the steps that FDA has been taking to advance the ball, as it were, in terms of how we go about or how the F, how the FDA goes about um, regulating digital health tools. So this is the broad away, array of tools, including artificial intelligence tools. Uh, FDA has been uh, actually very active for a number of years in providing guidance to digital health providers about how FDA will go about uh, reviewing and analyzing uh, the products based on uh, different types of categorizations. And uh, not all that long ago, at the end of 2016, uh, Congress passed the 21st Century Cures Act which went ahead and codified a lot of that guidance, which up until that point was, was just that. It was guidance. It wasn't necessarily something that anyone could rely on um, uh, as, 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 uh, as you could a, a law or an actual regulation. This was just guidance from the FDA. But with the codification of that, uh, the FDA was armed with, I think, a very significant tool to go out and really implement uh, um, how it goes about reviewing some of these products and giving uh, uh, the developers of these products a lot more comfort in terms of uh, uh, what they would expect 
from that regulatory um, from that regulatory review process. So the guidance covered things like mobile medical apps, uh, software as a medical device, uh, things of that nature. These areas that are really conceptually very difficult to contend with. Perhaps more significantly, even than that, has been uh, a pre-certification pilot program that FDA launched uh, to experiment with and, and try to develop uh, the information it needed to implement really a new way of approaching the regulatory process when it comes to digital health tools. And someone described it, I think, um, pretty effectively by analogy is that something like, for, all, for those of us who travel quite a bit, kind of that TSA pre-check process, whereby the FDA will essentially pre-check a company and in doing so reduce the pre-market uh, uh, review that the FDA do, would do with that company with respect to a product, allow that product to go through that initial pre-market regulatory process a lot quicker, but then on the other side, give the FDA a lot more data when it comes to that product being out in the market so the FDA can make sure that it is providing appropriate oversight. Mm -hmm. That pre-check program um, has the potential of significantly shifting the way the FDA goes about and regulates uh, that industry, and I think is one of the more significant changes that we've seen in the regulatory environment. Yeah, I, I find that as kind of a corollary when you look at Medicare these days, especially with uh, newer uh, technologies that are into the marketplace, and they may approve it, and they call it coverage with evidence development, where they, you know, they've got a baseline of what happens with these technologies, uh, and you know what, what the outcomes are going to be short term, and then they typically require additional data to be collected over time before they say, yeah, this is something that, uh, you know, we're comfortable with uh, covering and paying for. It sounds like the FDA is doing a little bit of that as well. They're kind of putting their toe into the water, testing it if it works, moving forward with it. Is that, is that, is that about right? Yeah, yeah. I, think th I think that the FDA is uh, actually a little bit more um, committed to the process. Huh. The, the pre-cert program uh, w originally w ended not all that long ago, but uh, recently announced that uh, they would add more companies. So they had a pilot program of about nine companies. They're going to add more companies to it, and their goal is to actually create the set of standards to implement for that, call it pre-check program, that pre-certification program by the mm -hmm. end of the year. So they're committed to move forward with this. Okay. So um, how do we get from where we are today to more ubiquitous use of artificial intelligence. I, I want, I'm going to open it up to the panel here to kind of talk about some of the concepts that are going to be important for us to, and I think everyone to think about as it relates to getting this in and used on a, uh, you know, on a, grand, a grander scale. Um, and um, I'm going to talk about things, and I'm going to ask some of you to just kind of respond. One of them is digital governance. One of them is making sure you have good data. One of them, obviously, is to ensure that you've got the appropriate analytics, uh, you're coordinating across disciplines in various functional areas in healthcare, you're looking at oversight, uh, allocating the responsibility, who's responsible for the box, the AA box. So, um, Craig, I'm going to start with you. You know, what are some of the more important um, concepts that need to be addressed in making sure that AI is uh, everything it needs to be? to make it uh, a real time and, and, and live? Well, I, I think you outlined many of the processes that, that need to be in place. Uh, so I congratulate you for that. Um, <laughs> I, I will say, I'll, I'll go back They were to all my... guesses, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I will go back to my uh, original statement at the top of this show, which is really uh, the question is, what is the question? Uh -huh. um, AI is only going to be helpful if it's um, answering a question that's important to um, providers or end users. Mm -hmm. And so, so often, um, you know, we're testing AI in situations or we're asking AI to predict outcomes which um, we can already predict pretty well. So the... the uh, the additional value of the AI um, may be minimal at best. And particularly if AI 
is using an approach uh, that is a black box where the end user, the physician, the provider doesn't understand how the prediction was made. It's often difficult to take an action based on that, particularly if that action is uh, a diagnostic or, or a treatment decision for a patient in front of you. Mm -hmm. um, so I think first and foremost is, is uh, asking a question where AI can be helpful. And then some of the other aspects that you brought up, um, ensuring that uh, the data that's entered into the electronic health record, which is usually the data pool from which AI is, is drawing, ensuring that that information is uh, accurate. Um, so often the electronic health record and the interface is built such that um, providers find it very difficult to do what they need for the patients in front of them. And so they may uh, just click their way through an interface to get what they want uh, without the data that they're entering uh, actually being as accurate as it could be. Hmm. Uh, and this is a problem on the back end. When you're attempting to use that information uh, and you're relying on the accuracy of that information to make uh, predictions or help providers with decisions. So the EHR interface and making it easy for providers to enter accurate information is really important so that that information pool is there. And then one other incredibly important uh, aspect of this is um, ensuring that uh, those who are building these models, who are often uh, very talented data scientists, are interacting with uh, the clinicians uh, or uh, users on the front lines to uh, think about uh, what questions are most important to answer, think about what outcomes are most important to predict, mm -hmm. and then how that information can be delivered to providers and used by providers to make decisions. Got it. So it's almost garbage in, garbage out. I mean, you've got to make sure that the information that's being captured is being done uh, diligently and uh, accurately. That's uh, that's kind of the name of the game. I'd also say, Jeff, without uh, Chad, yes, really um, being a slave to technology itself. I think Greg, what you described, which is a source of continual uh, frustration for really anybody in the in the healthcare space, is well, what does the system need from me? Um, and it, it sort of if you can flip the switch on that and the technology can be invisible and support you and your efforts without your having to search for um, as much as you have to search for. Um, it should be liberating in all the environments in which it's used, number one. Number two, can AI then be used to integrate workflows across those different environments to answer the very first question that you asked, which is, can we ask better questions? And you know, ultimately, all the all the AI in the world, all the science in the world, isn't going to matter if if people don't use it, if it's not deployed in a setting where it's consumed by people who spend 365 or 364, 360 two days, you know, out of a clinical care environment. Mm -hmm. um, how do you? How can the the wisdom? Um, be deployed in a way that's actionable by, by people living their everyday life so as to prevent their, you know, spending uh, as much time as sometimes they do in the hospital environment. Yeah. So we need to take a short break, uh, but please stay with us. When we come back, we'll be talking about artificial intelligence with my guest today, Dr. Craig Umshid, professor, associate professor at Penn and the director of evidence-based practice at UPenn Health System. Dale Vandermark, partner at McDermott, Will & Emery, and Chad Chadwick, CEO of Life Circle. Stay with us. We'll be back in a few. You're listening to The Business of Healthcare. Here again is Jeff Voigt. So welcome back. This is The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. I'm Jeff Voigt, and we're talking today about artificial intelligence uh, and its potential for widespread use in everyday medical practice. My guest today, Dr. Craig Gumshied, Associate Professor at Penn, Dale Vandermark, Partner at McDermott, Will & Emery, and Chad Chadwick, CEO of Live Circle, who's developed an AI-driven system for the care of chronic conditions in the home. So we've been talking, you know, on a theoretical basis for the first half hour, so let's, let's get into the practical here. Um, Chad, you've been 
dabbling in this for quite a period of time, and you've put together this system that works in the home. Uh, I want to I hear about this, and then let's get some feedback from the panelists on, on some of the issues that, um, uh, that uh, you've likely addressed and probably would need to be addressed. So, so go ahead, please. Set it up. Sure, sure. So it's all about personalizing uh, care, and what does that really mean? How do we help people live a story, a better story? Uh, it all sounds good. So we put a demo together that runs on our conversational AI software. So if you think of having a conversation with an Alexa, but an Alexa that can actually talk back to you and help you sort of organize your day and interact um, with various resources that you need in a collaborative way. That, that doesn't exist right now. Um, that's what we're building. Uh, we're in the pilot phase and excited to uh, be moving in the directions that we are. What you're uh, going to hear from uh, this demo that uh, actually runs on the conversational art, uh, software that we're developing is a story of a guy, uh, Tom Garvin, who's 74 years old, diabetic, widower, uh, retired school teacher and tutor, living alone, who wants to continue with his uh, um, pupils, uh, even though um, he doesn't see them every day. It's important to him. Uh, again, back to your question, Craig, about, you know, the quality of the question. Where does meaning come into the situation? And uh, it's story that we use to uh, sort of edit in and out a lot of data and that we run our lives uh, um, according to often as we search for that meaning and uh, continually define it. So what you're going to hear, you're going to hear uh, basically four different clips uh, uh, from, a, uh, uh, from the demo uh, annotated for, for radio. Uh, the first clip will be goal of the day and Tom's blood sugar. Uh, the second will be about triage to a live circle telecare expert, Nurse Jane, and how we would interact with other uh, health care facilities. Um, third would be Tom's home health aide, Georgia, who drops by to collaborate with Tom. And then the last would be a recap for the caregiver. So you'd see the, the role of the uh, virtual assistant and then some of the actual resources so along just, the way. So just to clarify, so Tom is a 74-year-old uh, diabetic, lives at home, uh, wants to be independent, yes? Yes. Okay, all right. So we're good. You're on. Clip one, the goal of the day and Tom's blood sugar count. Good morning. Morning, Tom. You sound happy. Big day with Eric, isn't it? That it is. Should I text Joel to remind him to be here by 1.45 this time? No, maybe later. Just trying to... Trying to gear up for the day? You said Eric was a handful last time. You're a know-it-all, aren't you? Only know what you tell me, Tom. Just want to be sure you've got enough energy for Eric today. What did you have for breakfast? It's 10 already. Yeah, I had a muffin. And what's your count now? Okay, let's see. Looks like 180. Thanks, Tom. You know what I'm going to say, don't you? Nothing I'm going to like, I'm sure. If you'd taken your pills, your counts would likely be lower now, especially after that muffin. I told you I took my pills. Clip 2. Triage to a live circle, telecare expert, Nurse Jane. How about we ask a live circle nurse the best way to get that count down at this point? How about we talk to Georgia instead? She's off today, Tom. But we could see if she could come by around lunchtime, if she's free. Clip 3. Tom's home health aide, Georgia, drops by. I heard you might be by. Rearranged a few things so I could be. Now let's get you squared away so there's no repeats of this morning. All I needed was a little walk and a swig of water. And some help from Nurse Jane, if I recall. I was wondering when you were going to pipe in. Yes, Jane told me all about it, which is why I'm here. Now let's focus on lunch. What's the plan? Clip four. Recap at night for family caregiver, Tom's daughter, Elise. Why did Georgia come by? I thought she wasn't due to see Dad until tomorrow. Your dad said he took his pills this morning, but his blood sugar counts were higher than usual. So, we wanted to see if he had actually taken them. Georgia agreed to change her schedule and come by. Is that happening a lot, that he's forgetting? He swears he took the pills. We'll keep an eye on it. All right, so what... Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on there, and there's a lot of stuff in the background that this AI system has to have in order to be able to figure this out. Let's talk a little bit about that stuff. What does it have that um, has allowed this 
conversation to occur. Chad? Well, it's something that uh, can run on your smartphone or other smart devices that you interact with, not just through voice, but through text and video. And it takes that data and translates it uh, against your personal story. Stories are role-based. Um, we think of much of our lives uh, in terms of conflicts that we have as either a father or a worker, et cetera, but other roles that uh, that are meaningful to us uh, and, and that, that sort of set out various conflicts. Um, the healthcare uh, space is, is uh, very vested in the notion of being a patient, but people don't want to be patients. Um, and so there's this conflict between the thing you have to do as a patient and so they say then, in Tom's case, what Tom really wants to do is to be able to somehow continue teaching, and he's reliant on others for transportation, et cetera, but doesn't necessarily have um, uh, all, the, all the means to quickly coordinate this and to actually experience it. Uh -huh. uh, he's the one searching for it, and he's relying on family members and others to help search for this. So searching is, is uh, sort of a predominant use of AI. Uh -huh. But if, in fact, it's then devoted to forming collaborative networks, which is what you just heard an example of, the care can be optimized, the resources can be um, pulled in uh, as needed. Uh, and by resources, I mean uh, those that involve machines, but also uh, other human beings, such as Georgia, who is the home health aide, mm -hmm. or the... Um, you know, or the uh, the nurse uh, for those situ situations that really require require that. Yeah, and and obviously in the background is the medical history of this person, and and it continues to learn about this person's medical history as it continues to communicate with it. But also that it, every it, every interaction feeds uh, or helps build the model of what that next step needs to be, so yeah. that the focus can be on enablement to the degree possible. Yeah. But but the the model itself also had to have uh, had to be uh, input into it was not only this patient's condition uh, which is diabetes had to understand that, right? Yes. Yeah. And so um, Craig and and uh, Dale, I, I want you I want to weigh in on this with you guys. I mean, is this something that you think is gonna it's gonna happen? It, it's happening now. But I mean, um, what what what's, what's your reaction to this, Craig? Uh, uh this is Craig. Um, so I guess a, f a few reactions. It's 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 tough to comment without really knowing the details uh, of the tool. But I I'm certainly comfortable commenting. Yes. More generally on some of these concepts, I I think the idea of uh, having tools that can help uh, connect people with. Uh, an increasingly complex care team uh, is a very good idea. Uh, that care team can include clearly the, the physician, but it could also include uh, the nurse lead at the individual practice, uh, home health aides, uh, pharmacy, uh, the family, including um, children and spouses. So I, I really like that aspect uh, of this example. Mm -hmm. um, the other aspect, which is interesting, is this is a 74-year-old patient with um, diabetes. Um, and one of the challenges, I think, of machine learning and AI uh, in general is um, the complexity of healthcare and how quickly patients, particularly as they get older, uh, really do become an N of one with all of their uh, complex comorbidities, uh, social situation, procedures that they've had, uh, very unique uh, medical regimens that they're on. Uh, so this is a simplified example of a patient with diabetes who's taking uh, it sounds like pills once or twice a day, mm -hmm. uh, but in reality, we're often dealing with patients with, um, you know, five yeah. comorbidities or ten. Mm -hmm. um, the the one other aspect here, which is interesting, is how the uh, how the patient is uh, interacting with the system, uh, and the interface is is so important. Just from my own personal experience with 
uh, my own family, uh, my dad, uh, who's in his mid-70s, uh, my in-laws, I watch how they, how they interact with, with technology and are successful mm-hmm. or are challenged by those interactions. I can share that, that uh, my dad has had a flip cell phone for many years, and I recently got him an iPhone for the holidays, and uh, I still can't reach him on the iPhone because he doesn't know how to answer it, so I have to call his flip phone. <laughs> uh, so so these these issues are very real, and they obviously become uh, less of an issue as as uh, we progress across the generations. But So those are some of my initial reactions. Okay, and, and Dale, from a, just from a legal standpoint, I mean, uh, what, what, what do you think? Well, there's a, there's a lot there. Uh, 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 you know, just talking about the AI system, there would be, know an immediate question about um, you know going to I think some of the comments Craig made about the complexity of people's health uh, we can easily see and you see on the marketplace uh, digital health enabled um, disease management tools that are out there but that broader environment where you're talking about providing some service to a patient that may have one or more conditions. I think the comment about the uh, complexity of that patient's uh, story, uh, to use Chad's term, which I, I love, by the way, um, I think is an issue that needs to be thought about uh, in that regulatory environment. I mean, that, that creates complexity. It creates more of a need to make sure that the tool, when it is utilized, uh, performs what it is supposed to perform, uh, and that uh, 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 any risk of, of of problems are mitigated as much as possible. Mm-hmm. But I would like to follow on, on on some things that Craig said because I think that the the, the example really is a very interesting one um, from the perspective of um, kind of what we view as healthcare. Uh, as a general matter, I think that this example does a great job of identifying how we are increasingly thinking about healthcare in this country, and I believe uh, to the better for us all, which is to capture a much broader picture of what is going on with the patient uh, and making sure that there are multiple touch points at multiple levels that it's not just about a condition, but it's about the, the, and again, I really like the phrase, it's about the patient's story. Yep. It's about that patient's needs uh, and their environment. And I think that those types of programs, and there are others out there, tech-enabled and otherwise, that I think are proving themselves to be very effective in <clears throat> excuse me, improving the quality of people's lives, making sure that they're taking care of themselves, avoiding complications associated with their conditions, and uh, doing so in a cost-effective manner, which brings me to the, the, the big regulatory point I wanted to, to raise with the example, which is all of these technologies and applications need to exist in an environment that is economically sound, mm-hmm. right? that's economically feasible for all of the participants. So the person receiving care, the uh, caregivers themselves, and also the organizations who are paying for the care. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they all have different interests associated with with what's going on, um, all focused on uh, uh, making sure that the patient is getting better, but those interests are Modified slightly depending on the on the perspective. So, for example, a payer will want to make sure that uh, uh, you know good products, good treatment plans are available to the patient. But at the same time, if there is another treatment plan that is just as effective as the one you're considering, but it costs 30% less, then the payer will rationally say. Well, I'm going to go with the one that's 30% less because it, it's just as effective as the other. That's what we're um, hoping. Yeah. yeah. And so all of those perspectives have to come to bear uh, when you look at, you know, when you look at the, the environment for technology and healthcare. Is this something that's going to 
you know, be covered on a on a fee for service basis? Is it a part of some larger capitated payment program or a bundled program? Um, all of those uh, all of those issues come up, and I think that uh, technology has the capacity to make those bundled and capitated payment programs um, much more attractive and cost efficient for the provider organizations that are trying to participate in them. Right, right. So um, I'm Jeff Hoyt, and you're listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111, and we're talking today about artificial intelligence and its potential for widespread use in everyday medical practice, and my guests today are Dr. Craig Umscheid, um, Umscheid, uh, Associate Professor at Penn. Dale Vandermark, partner at McDermott, Will, and Emery, and Chad Chadwick, CEO of Live Circle, and we just heard a, a demo of his uh, AI system as it operates in the home with a patient who has uh, diabetes, an elderly patient who has diabetes. So um, the, um, a couple of questions I have for you guys is, um, you know, all this needs to be continued to be tested out o- over time and, and, and validated. And so the validation process necessarily obviously involves regulatory and it involves, uh, you know, probably published articles on this. Um, let's kind of go through what, what would need to happen in order for this particular service to become more widespread from, from your perspectives. Craig, uh, could you, you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, I do think it's a, it's a good point about, um, you know, we so often think, uh, of um, the healthcare industry and products in the healthcare industry as being uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, pills, uh, or devices, uh, but increasingly they're um, using uh, information, specifically patient data, combined with uh, guidelines and, and other clinical research to help mm-hmm. uh, providers make decisions. So. Um, I I think the question is a good one about um, when do these interventions become simply uh, quality improvement uh, versus uh, research that needs to be tested uh, in a research environment. And oftentimes when we ask those questions within the healthcare provider environment, which, as Charles was saying, is, is in an environment which people spend the least time in, mm-hmm. um, but is still an important environment for, for testing these, these technologies. Uh, we often think about, um, you know, is this intervention uh, funded uh, by a national source or a federal source? Is it randomized? Uh, is it being conducted by um, a principal investigator who's typically a researcher? Uh, if the answer to those questions is yes, we often call it research, um, and we have to um, get the necessary uh, approvals and take the necessary precautions. Um, in other situations, we may call it improvement, mm-hmm. and so we just follow the the changes and process measures or outcomes um, without without calling it research. So. So I would say that this broader question of what is quality improvement and what is research, particularly as more and more healthcare interventions become technology-based, is a really important question. I wish I had more answers for you, but yeah. it's an important question. Right. Could well, I um, could I just make yeah. one quick comment or sure. add to that comment? I think that's a great that is a great comment. Um, yeah, there's one more dynamic at work. I think. Um, that practically in the marketplace sometimes comes up. Um, I noticed in uh, the recent MedPAC uh, report in March, there's a section on telemedicine, whether Medicare should uh, expand uh, its reimbursement of telemedicine services. And one of its primary findings, um, interestingly, about the commercial market for telemedicine was that payers were, and this is of course a generalization, but that payers were adopting telemedicine uh, benefits for competitive reasons, uh, not driven necessarily by quality or cost, but were, were doing so because they felt they needed to do so from a, from a competitive standpoint. That's not good. And it's an interesting dynamic that, <laughs> that works out in the marketplace, that, you know, that, that there is a, um, 
there's this push and pull we have about getting what we want versus getting what we need or what's appropriate for us. Um, and I think that in healthcare, um, we're constantly struggling with that uh, issue individually, but also as a, as a system as a whole. Um, you know, what is it we want to do? Do we want to give vast amounts of freedom or do we want to try to rein in cost and make sure that um, healthcare is really being improved? And, and where do you come up with that balance? It's a difficult. Uh, it's a difficult question. Well, I'm, I would imagine too, as, as healthcare becomes more consumer oriented, it's going to be giving people what they want versus necessarily what they need, and they'll kind of figure it out from a payment standpoint whether they want it out of pocket or whether it's part of their coverage policy. Right. Um, yeah, interesting. The, the, this is Craig. If, yeah. if I could just piggyback on that very quickly, I, I, I think that's a, that's a great comment. And I, I did want to make sure I pointed out that I don't think every new innovation uh, necessarily uh, needs to be examined in a research context. I think it's all about what's, the pro- what's our prior probability of uh, that new intervention succeeding. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example. Um, I've discussed nationally with colleagues uh, the notion of how do we improve the discharge summary for patients uh, when they're leaving the hospital. And I've heard comments from some about the lack of research showing that improvements in the discharge summary make a difference for patients in terms of readmissions and whatnot. And in my mind, uh, it's, uh, it's very unlikely that dramatic improvements in the discharge summary uh, are not going to be helpful uh, for patients. Uh, so this is an area where we probably need uh, less research uh, and more innovation, uh, mm-hmm. improving tools to help patients uh, understand what happened to them in the hospital and leave the hospital knowing what the next step should be. The one other comment I wanted to make is um, uh, most of the uh, diagnostic um, tests or treatments that patients are on uh, are really decisions that, in the end, they need to be making based on the outcomes that they care about. Right. So often I hear providers talk about what a patient needs. So often a patient doesn't need anything. Mm-hmm. Um, they need to know what outcomes are important to them and try and understand how best to, to reach those outcomes. Right. And sometimes that means healthcare interventions. Oftentimes it doesn't. So yeah. I, I actually think emphasizing... Uh, outcomes that are important to patients is, is even more important than, than outcomes important to physicians or providers. Got it. So uh, you've been listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. This program will be replayed several times over the next week and will be available on demand for subscribers. It's played on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I'm Jeff Ford. I want to thank my guests today, Chad Chadwick from Live Circle. Dr. Craig Umshid from UPenn, and Dale Vandermark from McDermott, Will, and Emory. It was a, a very lively discussion on AI and where we're headed. Um, I, my guess is I think someday we'll be talking with Live Circle about care given in a home, and hopefully that'll, uh, that'll make a life easier for everybody else. I want to thank Brian Drew, producer. I also want to thank Danielle, uh, the sound, our sound person. Uh, for what they did today, uh, and we'll, uh, we'll be back next month with another show. Have a great day. Thanks. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.